Born on December 18, 1702, Charles Wesley was a prolific hymn writer, authoring such hymns as Christ the Lord is Risen Today, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, and 6,500, imagine that, others during his lifetime. In 1742, his hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, was published. Oddly, if you are familiar at all with Wesleyan theology, the hymn is a hymn of assurance of salvation that leads to confidence in prayer. Wesley wrote, Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears, the bleeding sacrifice in behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear, he owns Me, for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father Abba, Father, cry. Friends, we've been working our way through 1 John since October of last year. And we arrived at our verses here in 14 and 15. And we, like the Wesleyan hymn, will learn today that we can draw near in confidence to our God. Amen. Let us remember, though, as we get ready to dive into the text, that this early church in and around Ephesus was under a doctrinal attack from the Antichrist teachers recorded in chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. This was causing a lot of confusion, and undoubtedly the church was losing confidence in what they believed, and John has been writing to the church, those believers, those who are left, to encourage them. Don't worry about the Antichrist teachers, even though they are likely claiming to be Christians. Don't listen to them. Listen to us. That's how he starts his letter. But starting in chapter 5, verse 4, the Holy Spirit had inspired John to begin to draw the letter to a close. In verses 4 and 5, the Spirit used the word overcome or victory to describe a real Christian's confidence that they should have in the Lord. In verses 6 through 10, a courtroom scene as such, we gained confidence as we studied through it that we learned that God himself testified himself about his Son. In verses 11 through 13, we learned that genuine Christians could have confidence in the inheritance of eternal life. And why? Because their eternal life did not depend upon them at all, but all that Jesus had done for them in his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. In verse 12, John said, He who has the Son has the life. 
So we can see here that there is an obvious need for Christians to be assured of their salvation in light of the fact that these false teachers had come in. They had shaken up the church. Many had left. No doubt they were calling themselves Christians, but they did not believe about uh, the, the truth, about the deity of Christ, and specifically that Christ himself as God came in the flesh. We've been pushing back on this kind of general American idea that any doctrine is okay and we're all good and we're all just headed to heaven. As long as you call yourself a Christian, everything's just fine. And John could not be any clearer than he is in this text to say, no way. Right doctrine, right understanding about who Christ is as a man fully and as God fully decides what the right gospel is, and therefore eternity with him. And sticking with this theme of real Christians having assurance of their salvation, the Holy Spirit now inspires John to focus on having confidence in answered prayer. I honestly am probably going to go a little bit long today, and I apologize. You should never warn a congregation of that. I feel like every time we get down to the last verses, that goes longer, right? I just have to dig in a little bit deeper. But this topic of answered prayer is tied to the assurance of our salvation. It's tied to the gospel that we heard and the gospel that we re- respond to. It's tied to our obedience. It's tied to following Christ and not ourselves. And, and I'm so excited to be here and preaching this this morning because it's so convicting for me as I'm studying it and realizing in my own life areas that I did not believe rightly about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. Beloved, the Holy Spirit, verses 14 and 15, is going to teach us today that when a Christian makes a request according to the Father's will, they can have confidence that they will receive that request. In short, prayer according to the Father's will will be answered. It will be honored. Are you living that kind of life? (laughs) I felt so convicted this week as I began to study. It's like, I'm not really living that way. Why, Lord? Why am I not having that kind of confidence? And it's been a difficult study for those reasons. I've written inside of your bulletin a number of questions. I I couldn't quit writing (laughs) questions and statements for that very reason. And so I hope that You'll find some time uh, during this week, during a small group, during dinner or something tonight to to walk through those and maybe really dig into this topic. It is very clear here in the text that a first century Christian understood that they were to follow Christ, and while they were following Christ, God would answer their prayer. I think there's a lot for us to learn. John starts with, This is the confidence. This is the confidence. He actually starts with and, and if you're reading anything other than the NIV or the NASB, you have the and in there, and I'm not in love with the translators and what they did there by taking the and out. And, of course, is a conjunction, right? It ties that which had just been said in verse 13 Uh, 11 through 13, namely that the Christian can know that they have eternal life because verse 12 says, he who has the Son has life. So it should be and, this is the confidence. It is tied together. And and, uh, uh, verse 13 in specific is kind of notoriously difficult 
to place. Uh, some translators place it with uh, uh, 13, 14, and 15 together as a paragraph. Other translators put 13 at the end of verses 11 and 12 and 13 and then start a new paragraph here with prayer. Uh, why is it difficult? Because they are connected, right? Uh, the stream of thought, the Spirit of God is working through John and he is speaking and somebody is likely pinning this out. And just like a conversation, we kind of bounce from one thing to the other and always it's not clear as to what thought is what. But here, we see this and there and it's important. And this is the confidence and where and, and what which we have before him. You might highlight or uh, underline or circle in your text the word is, and maybe you think, well, that's kind of silly. But it points us back to this and. It points us to this reality. It is in the present tense. It's ongoing in the Christian's life. It is the confidence that you as a Christian should have, that you can come before him. And why? Not because we don't sin, not because we don't struggle, <laughs> right? We don't fall. We, we do all of those things. We have this confidence. We can continue to have this confidence because of what Christ did for you and I on the cross. And when we get beat down and when we're struggling and we have fallen into sin, we can come back to these present tense verbs in, in John. They're so important. And we can lean in and say, the work has been done. This is the confidence that you can have. Amen? It is right now. The word getting translated as confidence in our text is an interesting one. It is the Greek word parasia. Parasia. It, first, it is first recorded and used by Aristophanes in the 5th and 4th century B.C., and it was a political world, uh, word that has really uh, maintained all the way up until our time now that effectively meant the freedom of speech or the freedom to speak confidently and plainly. And it arose in these democratic-style governments where there was a high level of importance put on the idea that you should be able to speak freely and move a nation forward. The Greek word parasia is used in this way throughout the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's used quite a few times, uh, 31 times to be specific, and John uses it 11 of those. It's an important word to him. In John 18, verse 20, it says this, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. Behind that word openly or plainly that we're going to see here in the next verse, is this word parasia. In Mark 8.32, he was stating the matter plainly. That's the word parasia. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You'll remember that that's when he was telling those 12 that he was, in fact, going to die. But he says the matter plainly, openly, parasia. John 10.24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us, Plainly, parasia, there's the word, John eleven fourteen. So Jesus then said to them, plainly, Lazarus is dead. You'll remember the story, right? He's not sleeping. Let me just say it, parasia. Let me make it clear to you. Let me speak it boldly. Let me say it plainly to you. 
John 16, 25, these things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, in a figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you parasia, plainly, openly, boldly of the Father. So as we can see, the Greek word parasia carries with it this idea of the freedom to confidently speak, of which will be at the heart of any free country. It is used in this political type of idea and sense. And as you know, the First Amendment of our Constitution says this. I have it before you on the screen. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the, here it is, freedom of speech. If we were writing it in Greek, or not, it would say parasia right there. This idea, this confidence, this freedom to speak or the, of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, or the petition, or to petition the government for a redress or grievances. It is so important that speech is clear, that it's bold, that it's, uh, it has the ability to go forth and change lives to be heard. And as Jesus moved on into the parables at the latter part of his ministry, these disciples, right, they, they're thrown off by this. They're thrown off. Why don't you speak plainly, right? Because hearing they did not hear. The nation rejected the king. Friends, there's not much which bothers me more than citizens who dishonor our country by kneeling at the presence or burning of our nation's flag. But the fact of the matter is, on this Memorial Day weekend, we must remember that thousands of soldiers have died so that people can speak confidently. People can speak plainly. We don't have to love what they say. We don't have to love what they do. But we should appreciate the parasia, their opportunity to speak freely without being pressed back and told what they can or cannot say or think. This is the freedom that is being spoken of here in 1 John, that we can speak plainly or boldly and notice in our text before him. So think of that, <laughs> right? We don't have to come to the Lord and, and do a bunch of prep work and uh, much like the much like the, the priests would have had to do as they were entering to the Holy of Holies, go through this whole rigmarole of getting pure and washing and changing clothes and doing all these things. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on this and he, and he says, come boldly to the throne room of grace. That's the same word right there. Come with confidence. Come with parasia. Speak boldly. There's nothing that is in between you and he. You don't have to get dressed up. You don't have to get cleaned up. You just come and like, like, like the hymn, we say, Abba, Father, we cry. Because he has paid the price for us. Amen? We come boldly. We speak freely to the King of Kings. What an amazing thought. This is not the first time the Holy Spirit-inspired John has mentioned that Christians should have confidence before uh, Jesus. He said in 1 John 2, verse 28, we studied this some months ago now, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence, there's the word, parasia, and not shrink away from him 
in, the, uh, in shame at his coming. And the idea there is John is, had been teaching, right, that if you want confidence in your Christianity, if you want to move forward and if you want to be confidently standing before Christ, is that you will look to his commandments, you will look to the written word of God, the express word of God in Jesus Christ, and you will obey. And we hate that word as Americans, right? We will submit And as we submit and as we obey, our will begins to align with his will because Jesus Christ is the exact express image of God and we follow after him and we look to him. And just like that day when he comes back, if you are doing that, John is saying here in chapter two, you will have parasia. You will speak boldly. You will will speak clearly that God is your Savior, and you will not shrink away from him. You will have confidence. Amen? Love it, the same confidence that being obedient to Christ's commands will bring us at his second coming is the same confidence that we can have as we come before him in a prayer. And this is where I was telling you earlier that it is so tied to our obedience. We do not obey to be saved. Let me say it and be very clear. We will obey, however, because we were saved. And that is John's point throughout the letter. There's no obedience to Christ. There's likely no salvation in your heart. You may like Christianity. You might like showing up uh, to church on Sunday. You may never miss uh, a service, a small group, or whatever it might be, right? But if there is no obedience in your heart, it is likely you are not a believer, what John is pressing on. The false teachers would not obey. They would not believe. They believed in a wrong Christ. They would not follow Christ. They will not have confidence. They will not have parasia. When the Lord comes to judge, they will shrink back. Notice that John says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Valor and I traveled yesterday to a graduation and we were pondering these texts and, and just the magnificence of this promise. If we ask some things, part things, no things, if we ask anything according to his will, this should light a fire under us. Should it not, beloved? It should light a fire under us to say, what is God's will, right? <laughs> What is God's will for my life? If I can ask anything, what must I do? I must know God's will. What an exciting thing. We began to talk about that and and think of the promises of that. I love the absoluteness of this text. For the real Christian, we can ask anything according to his will. And it says here that he hears us. And the idea here is not that God hears you, just God certainly hears you. He's in all places at all time. He's, at, at, he's operating in the smallest atom. I guess they're all the same size. In the smallest way, in the atoms of every part of your being, he is all places at all time. God has heard you. The idea here is not that he heard you. He is able to hear, amen, right? We see this as John follows it up. This is much like a typical Hebrew proverb. You say it, one way like this, and then you say it another way. 
like this. And he said it this way in verse 15. And, uh, and if, and the, here is a conditional clause that in the Greek, it doesn't really help us too much in the English, but uh, for a Greek reader, they would have understood it to be this, it is since, not if, it's a first-class conditional. And if we know that he hears us, and we can always say, and he does with that type of conditional clause, so we, we can say, and since we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we can have the requests which we have asked from him. We know. We know. I don't uh, have time to get into all of this, but starting in verse 13 and chapter 5, this assurance of salvation, uh, the Lord through John has been leaning in on and he shifts his normal word throughout the his text is this word ginosko for no, and it has this experiential knowledge, right? We're learning by experience. But here and all the way through the remainder of your text to the end, every time you see the word no, no it is this Greek word oida, and it, is me, it, it, it means that which has been revealed and we know it, right? We know it like our ABCs. We know it like we can memorize and know the Word of God. And we might think we would come to a text here about prayer, and we would think, well, that would be subjective. It would more likely be that it would be gnosko there, an experiential knowledge. It's not at all what John says, right? He says, you can know that you have it. That's how certain he is. And John is going to use oida all the way through the remainder of this text to the end. You can know it, you can know it. Beloved, you can know it, you can know it. Why? Because Jesus paid for it. In short, beloved, John is boldly, freely, plainly, confidently saying that, there, that a Christian's prayer, when they make a request according to the Father's will, will receive that which they have asked for from him. Lest we think this is the only place where the, a follower of Christ is given these instructions about prayer, I want us to Consider a few texts together. Now, as we go through these, I want you to pay attention to the qualifiers for effective prayer. This uh, is a study in all of itself, but we don't have time to get into it, and I wish we could. But notice the two major qualifiers for effective prayer. First, prayer needs to be done in faith. And second, it needs to be submitted and unselfish prayer, not our will, but his will. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 says, Ask, that assumes there is faith, and it will, look at the surety, be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened for you. Matthew 21, 22, very similar. And all things that you ask in prayer, believing, there it is, in faith, right? Same word in the Greek, pistuo, is, uh, uh, gets translated either belief or faith. Same word. All things you ask in prayer, in faith or believing, you will receive. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, all the things for which you pray and ask, have faith or believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. The half-brother of Jesus, James, said in his instructions on requests in prayer for wisdom, and James 1, verses 6 through 7, but he must ask in faith, that is for the wisdom, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the, that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything 
from the Lord. So it is, beloved, that there is a level of faith and believing that we need to come in confidence and boldness to the throne room. That if we ask according to his will, it will happen. What a powerful thought. However, our text is clear that not only we must believe, but we must ask according to the will of God. This idea is conveyed throughout the Gospels when we see Jesus teach about prayer, stating that they cannot just expect to receive anything, but Christians must ask in the name of what? Jesus. I don't think we have a real good grasp on this, and we have a lot of tradition doing this. And Jesus even tries to clear it up as he comes to the end of his ministry because he gets into John 16 and he begins to talk to the, to the remaining 11 apostles. And, and he says, as, as for as it is now, you have not yet asked for anything in my name. In other words, this is a new thing, right? But as it is going to be in the future, if you ask anything in my name, you will receive it. And what is the idea behind that? It is, it, it is this idea that they have come, they have become one with Jesus, they are following Christ. And as they are following Christ, they are one with him, and they would not ask for anything that would not honor Christ. That is asking in Jesus' name. We often kind of put it as a period and maybe a little bit like a genie in a bottle, right? Well, if I just rub the bottle right, or if I just say these few words right, uh, we just say, in Jesus' name, and things will all be good, right? I think we've missed the point. In saying, in Jesus' name, we are saying, I am submitted. I have followed Christ. I have left it all. And all I have is Christ. So, uh, asking in Jesus' name is this reference to asking through a worldview or a lens that we have so followed Christ and what he has taught. He said this in John 14, 13, and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Or if you ask me anything in my name, there it is, I will do it. Important to understand what it means. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Right? And that fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, there's the qualifier, he may give you. John 16, 23 and 24, in that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if the Father, if you ask the Father for anything again in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. And finally, notice in John 15, 7, that the command to abide in Jesus is synonymous with being in his name. He said in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abiding, staying, leaving behind an old life, Repenting, turning from sin, following Jesus, aligning your will with his will, looking to the word of God to, to understand all that you are to say and do in every action of life and every pressure and every 
thing that gets pushed upon us in trial, everything from losing people in our lives to being lied about at work or at home or whatever may be going on, how do I respond through the lens of what Jesus has said? And the more and more and more I align my life with this idea that every response that I'm going to have is going to be a response that is what Jesus would do, ask, and it will be given unto you. Does that make sense? In a, in a sense, we are called to die. We are called to die and be little Christians, those who follow Christ. Though it is, beloved, just a little dip of our toes into making requests of God that will be answered, it shows us that we must, one, ask in faith, and we must, two, ask according to the Father's will. You doing all right? It's quiet. The air conditioners are on. Don't fall asleep. Hot up here. And we know that the life of being submitted to the Father's will has been clearly evidenced by the, by the obedience found in the life of Jesus, who told the 11 apostles, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That should be motivation enough. It should be motivation enough that if we abide in the word of God, if we abide in Christ, that we could have such intimacy with the Father that we could come boldly, clearly, and speak whatever it is and he would honor it. It is the second point, asking in Christ's name or abiding in Christ, that I want to lean in on here for just a little bit as it is uh, a, a huge struggle for us daily, right? It wouldn't it be great <laughs> if when we recognized that we were sinners and we desperately needed saved and that we desperately needed a new path in life that, that at that moment, whatever day that was in your life, that that was the last time you were going to need that grace. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been awesome, right? We just leaned in on Christ one time and everything changed. But we know that's not the truth, and we know it doesn't work that way. And we know that we constantly need to be encouraged to get back to the cross, look back to the cross, look back to the cross as we struggle with the sins of life and the, and the trials in life. We have to work to abide. That The very word abide means that, does it not? It, it, it means that there is something to be done. I have to stay there. My, my general countenance is going to be to fall back into my old nature and my old habits. So let's lean in on it. I think we misunderstand first because we have misunderstood the call to salvation from God's coming wrath on sin. And it was a call to turn from one kind of life to a different kind of life. It was a call to come and follow Jesus. It was a call to walk up that hill with your cross and give up living the life that you were living and follow after him. We have left repentance out of the gospel. I firmly believe that this is at the center of all of our problems and likewise our pandemic of no prayer or prayer that goes unanswered. As Americans, we love freedom and autonomy. And to be quite frank, I don't think it's just about being an American. <laughs> I think it's the nature of the flesh. It's just that we celebrate it in America. The Scripture, however, stands in direct opposition to freedom and autonomy. In opposition to freedom, Christians are called to, 
to be slaves of Christ. That is literally the language of the New Testament. <laughs> Welcome home, you're a slave. You, owe, you are owned. Your life is not your own. <laughs> Look to the word of God and, and, and you will, uh, he who loses his life will gain it. And he who looks to gain his whole life will lose it. The language of the New Testament is come and be owned. The difference is our master is amazing. Amen? Amen. I don't know why it is we get confused about this. I think we just like the idea of grace, and I certainly do. Amen? We're called to be slaves of Christ who did not operate in freedom, but rather in submission like Christ did. The call from Jesus all throughout the Gospels was to come and to die. And Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27 uh, records this. Now a large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Man. That's a gut punch, <laughs> isn't it? Like, you mean I, I got to love God more than my family and my wife and my kids? I got to be willing to, to walk away and serve Christ before I would ever serve my kids or my family? You mean complete death here? Cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It cannot be. It's impossible. If somebody's asking the question, are you a disciple of Christ? And there looks like there is no death in your life and there is no obedience to the word of God and there is no desire to know the word of God and obey the word of God, then, then if the shoe fits, it must be your shoe. <laughs> right? <laughs> the shoe fits, it, it must be your shoe. You cannot be the disciple of the Lord and not have died to your old sinful lifestyle and said, I'm going to do everything I can in your grace, God, to follow after you. Certainly we fall. Certainly we struggle. But we fall forward and we say, Lord, help us. Pick me up. I need your grace. Now in verses 28 through 32, Jesus gives two examples of what he's meaning here. First is a person who did not calculate the cost of building uh, a tower, and ultimately he could not finish, and he bears the shame. And the second was a king who uh, was trying to decide to go to war, but uh, he, he didn't know that his enemy right, was, and had overpowering strength. In both cases, they were like those who would not count the cost of following Jesus with your whole life. And the idea there is in the negative, Right? They didn't do it right. They're not going to be my disciples. They did not understand that giving up their old life was a necessity to follow after Christ. They like grace. We all love grace. Amen. It's by grace we are saved through faith, and that is not even our own. Amen and amen. But a real believer is going to follow Christ. And Jesus follows up these statements in Luke Verse 33, saying, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. All his own possessions. 
Anything that you think is yours, you just got to give it up. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, beloved, been in a position like this. I did not realize the amount of idolatry that was in my life until as I lived in Laramie and, and we were being called to, to continue on and, and uh, in, in uh, our learning in seminary, I had received a degree uh, one degree, a master's of arts and theological studies, and I was feeling called to, to go on and do a master of divinity in North Carolina, and, and our whole lives had been built in, in Laramie, just over the hill, many of you know. Uh, I had owned my own business. I, had, uh, I loved living in Laramie. I, every time I go back over there, even the idolatry in my heart kind of rises back up. I, I look out. I see the mountains. It's just, it's just a much prettier town. Now, I love Cheyenne, but this is prettier over there, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> you drop into that valley and you look out there. And then for me, I grew up in a hunting and fishing home. And, and so there's just millions of acres of playground to go out and fish every creek and, and chase every uh, elk and hunt every duck and anything you could imagine. I just grew up. My dad was a, uh, was a very early employee of Cabela's. And, and so I just grew up doing outdoor stuff. And I couldn't believe there would be a better place my son shot his first elk 15 minutes from our house, you know, just on thousands and thousands of, of public acres. But what I realized when we had packed everything up, I had built a business and I sold the business that we had built a custom home and I sold the house and we're all packed up and we're pointed east in a giant U-Haul and we're headed out of Laramie trying to drive up that giant hill. It is the only place in the world that it's uphill both ways to get to it, you know, um, so when you live in a crater, <laughs> that's just the way it goes. But, uh, but anyway, um, when we're driving out, I'm weeping. I'm weeping at the cost, and I'm realizing how idolatrous. I never knew it until I walked away from it, until I said, Lord, I'm going to follow you off to school. I did not know that there was that much idolatry in my heart and my mind. So it is, beloved, that we can look at these texts and we think, well, maybe I, I followed, right? But then God puts you through the wine press of life and you begin to realize there's idols in my heart. In Matthew's and Mark's Gospels, a man ran up to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. After the man affirmed that he had, in fact, kept the law, Mark records Jesus' response in Mark 10, 21. It says this, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. Maybe he felt love for me in that time when I'm weeping and driving away from my idols. Felt love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Notice here, go, one, and sell, two, all that you possess and give free to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You might say that Jesus said one thing. <laughs> it's interesting in that text that those three verbs are imperatives. Go, <laughs> right? Sell it. Give it. They're not options. They're not present tense. They are imperatives. Get it done, right? But those three commands uh, are understood to be this command to come and follow 
me. Friends, this is part of our problem both in American Christianity, I think just in being in the flesh, we are constantly reverting back to that which comes natural to us, those idols, those things, and we do not like to follow Christ. So friends, what gospel did you respond to? One that said you could keep on living however you wanted to and you could just live in grace and things would be okay and maybe it will be. I, I don't know how that's all going to work, but you certainly are not going to have assurance of your salvation without obedience to Christ. That's what we know. That's all we can look at. If you've heard some kind of gospel that says you just go on living your life, however, I believe in Jesus, I I rubbed the genie bottle. I said the right words. I I prayed the right prayer with somebody. Life's good. I must be fine. No. John is pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing against that, right? If there is no obedience, if there is no love of the brethren, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. I recently invited a man to join us uh, in church as he told me that he was a Christian. Have you ever been thrown off by that? However, as I continued to speak with him, it became ever increasingly obviously that he was not. And how did I know? He had no desire to and was clearly not following Christ's example. Beloved, don't be tricked. When people say, I'm a Christian, keep pressing. Keep asking. Hell is on the line. Heaven is on the line. He went on to tell me how he believes in all this Christian science and that he prayed a prayer one time and life was good. He got his fire insurance and I just live how I want and maybe someday I'd like to teach my kids something uh, that might be kind of Christian, but I'm never going to submit to what Jesus said. It can't be so. This is what the false teachers are doing in Ephesus. They're leading people away from Christ. If you believed a gospel that taught you that you could keep on living however you wanted, you did not hear the gospel of repentance and submission to Christ. It is why our prayers do not get answered. It is because we, we are believing in some kind of genie bottle that we rubbed and said some kind of magic prayer, but the Spirit of God is not living in your life. You need to repent and turn and hear what Jesus is saying here, that it is going to cost you everything. That's real salvation. Come and follow me. Go. (laughs) Sell it. Give it. Doesn't mean we can't have things, but it certainly means they got to be kind of like this. I'll give it away. (laughs) That's yours, Lord. When our hearts begin to get attached, it's a danger sign. Because prayer is often us requesting to become more like Christ We need confidence in our salvation that God is hearing us and that confidence will come from being obedient to Christ even when we don't feel like it. Christ, he said, not my will, but the Father's will be done. Val and I, as we drove over, we spoke of this and we talked of this moment in the beauty of the Garden of Gethsemane and the humanity of Jesus who clearly knew he was going to die. We already quoted uh, the scripture where he is telling Peter, I'm going to die. And he says it plainly with confidence. He knows that he's going to die, yet he comes to the garden. And three times he asks, Lord, right? Could you take this cup from me? 
And we see the humanity of Christ. And then he follows it up. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And that's how we have to live life, open-handed. Lord, I have a desire. We certainly can identify with the weakness. That was real weakness, by the way, in, in Christ's human flesh. Right? He was really feeling that. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, right, we don't have a high priest that cannot identify with us, but in every way is tempted, just like you and I were tempted, yet without sin. It was real temptation. It was a real desire to walk away and just think had Christ walked away from that moment, where would you and I be today? If God had answered that prayer, okay, never mind. The redemption of, uh, of all sinners is no longer paid for. Had God answered that prayer, where would we be? Certainly not headed for heaven. How do we know God's will? How do we know God's will? The Apostle Paul understood this principle of dying to ourselves and following after Christ and Knowing the will of God, he said this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Here's the same message Christ preached. Die to yourself, <laughs> right? A living and holy sacrifice. That sounds fun, right? To be perpetually stuck up on an altar and stabbed and stabbed and stabbed. Be a living sacrifice. One that just keeps on dying. <laughs> it's your spiritual service of worship. Now pay attention here. If we want to know the will of God for our requests to be answered, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, Paul is saying, don't live like the world. Sell out. Follow Christ. Forget it. Quit doing your will. Pick up the, the term, uh, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Let go of all the things that you are gathering. Gather them, but be, be willing to freely give them if it means that you would follow Christ. But we must know the revealed will of God found in the Scriptures. We must carefully seek God's truth. We must obey that which Jesus has called us to and as we do this consistently, our will and God's will begin to line up and we will have the freedom of speech, the confidence, knowing that we have requests which have been asked from him or asked. We'll have those requests. It starts with knowing that you responded to a correct gospel. And if maybe you didn't, Forgive me for referring back to it, but as we spoke yesterday, my wife and I were born again. We're confident of that back in 1998, but in a church that I wouldn't send probably people to today. God did his work. Praise the Lord. We're grateful for that. Uh, we repented, not because they told us to repent <laughs> or that the gospel was even presented perfectly, but we were convicted of our sin and we walked away from it. It starts with knowing a correct gospel. Turn, repent, leave, quit living for yourself, follow Jesus. Second, learn that Jesus, uh, uh, what Jesus and the apostles taught. We have discipleship classes. We have, uh, you could 
engage in daily Bible reading with the idea, I always tell people this, don't read your Bible if you don't have any intention to follow it. (laughs) Don't do it. You're just wasting your time. (laughs) If there is no intention in your heart to find obedience, to walk in obedience, to get closer to Christ, I hope that kind of hurts your ears a little bit. I read a chapter a day, but I don't do a thing it says. Be ridiculous. Memorize Scripture. Get it in our hearts so that when we're tempted, the Spirit of God would use that. If you're just stuck in the mud, you've been a Christian for a long time, it's like, oh, I'm just so stuck. Go to 2 Peter 1, 4 through 11, and uh, it'll encourage you to add these virtues to your faith so that you could have confidence of your salvation. Remember that in Romans 7, Paul would say, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why don't I don't do the things that I should do? Wretched man that I am. Remember that. Give yourself a break in that sense. You can identify with the Apostle Paul. And then revel in 1 John 1.9. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. Amen? Keep moving forward. Thirdly, if we want to have our prayers answered, we must force ourselves to pray together and to pray, not my will, but yours be done. James, the half-brother of Jesus, often uses the negative to teach a positive, but he said this in chapter 4, verse 3, as it pertained, um, pertained to this topic, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Why don't you receive, you could ask? You ask for the wrong things. Your will is not aligned with God's will. You're asking. You're not receiving. Why? There is something that is not aligned. He goes on to say, so that you can spend it on your own pleasures, right? You're not praying for God's will, but ours, James is saying. Additionally, James gives us some insight into the reality that we cannot follow Christ on our own. It requires humility and vulnerability to see prayer answered and people healed, He said in James 5.16, therefore confess your sins, listen here, to one another. Now, listen, I'm all for being wise in the kind of sins that you, you, you are confessing to one another, and I think there should be some discretion there. But if you are not confessing genuine, real struggles and sins to one another somewhere in your life, and you're just vaguely saying, well, I just kind of want prayer for that, and I just kind of want prayer for that, and you're not digging in, it likely is pointing that you're not intimately walking with Christ. Those, those things are not convicting your heart. And James is saying, if you want healing, if you want wholeness, get it out. You're not going to do this life on your own. To one another, pray for one another, he says, so that you may be healed, the effectual Prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Beloved, confidence in prayer is a promise to the genuine Christian. If we pray according to the Father's will, it will be honored and will accomplish much. And why the genuine Christian will, like Jesus, be praying, not my will, but yours be done. And your kingdom come, your will be done. Beloved, in short, we can, like that great Wesleyan hymns say, my God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear, he owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father Abba, Father, cry. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your 
your people, the opportunity to dig into your word, to consider that we can, Lord, have great confidence in our walk with you and in seeing our prayers answered. Lord, I pray that um, this word, your text, would cut and heal hearts. Lord, I pray that you would draw us back unto yourself if we have wandered off the path. Lord, I, I pray that we would renew our minds to be obedient to you, that we might walk in intimacy with you and we might see great things prayed for and nations revived, Lord, like the Ninevites of old because we are a people who are committed and strong and running after you, Lord. We'll give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.